If you'd open your Bibles to Romans 3, as we continue on in our journey through this book of Romans, we're going to be looking at verses 21 to 26. One commentator said these are the most important verses in the Bible, period. And another one said, if I had to clip out six verses from the Bible, those are the only verses I could take from the scriptures, these would be the six verses I would want to take. And I would take them. They're that powerful. We're going to begin reading at verse 21 today, and it begins with, but now, but now. And that really comes in the context that we've been seeing after Paul has established that all people are sinners and all people are guilty and condemned and deserve the condemnation of God. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to notice that proper noun word order, Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I want to point out a couple of things about the verb sin and fall short of the glory. The verb sin is aorist tense. It's pointing back to one point in time. And what Paul will later develop in the fifth chapter of Romans is he's pointing back to the sin of Adam. We all sin when Adam sinned, and that is exactly what he's referring to here. He'll develop that later in this book of Romans. But then when he says, and have fallen short, he uses a present middle verb, which would indicate every human being, every human being in and of themselves, has sinned and they have fallen short, continually have fallen short of the glory of God. Then he begins in verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in, now notice he changes, and this is very odd, the word order, Christ Jesus. Remember in verse 22, it was Jesus Christ. Now he changes the word order in verse 24, Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly, as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness, his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness. And we're going to emphasize that it's his righteousness, it's not our righteousness. And so the text says, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And now he uses the name Jesus without the combination of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. We'll talk about that. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the scriptures this morning and also to the exposition later. Will you join with me please in prayer? Our Father, we bow before thee today and having read this amazing passage... We don't quite know what to say. Thank you just seems so inadequate. It is staggering, staggering for us to think that you would grant us the righteousness of your son simply by faith in him. But that's what this passage teaches. And we acknowledge to you that we believe that. And we acknowledge before you that we Admit that your son, your precious son, is our only refuge. Your precious son is our only fountain of life. Your precious son is the foundation of all our blessings. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the fact that he has come to this earth and made it possible for us to have a relationship with you. Lord, he is 
our justification. He is our propitiation, our redemption, our sanctification, our glorification. He is our only Savior, and he's our only hope, and we thank you for him. We pray that we will always stand in awe for what you've given us in Christ. And may we always reverence you and love you and serve you because of that. Forgive us for our shortcomings. There's always more that we can do. There's always ways we can grow. Grant us more knowledge. Grant us more understanding. Grant us depth. Lord, I pray for the impact of this thy gospel. We would ask that you would use this book of Romans to evangelize, to educate, to edify. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago today... On Sunday, October 9, at 2 a.m., a Coast Guard aircraft helicopter took off from Mobile, Alabama, to search for three men whose boat was sinking in the Gulf of Mexico. The men were spotted in the ocean about 25 miles off the coast, and by the time the helicopter got to where they were, they were surrounded by sharks. They had been in the water for several hours, The helicopter hovered over them and lowered to them a lifeline basket, and all three men took it and got in and were rescued. Now suppose for a moment that when the lifeline was lowered to those men, they would have said, you know, we don't really want this lifeline. We don't need it. We want to try to make it on our own. Yes, you've dropped this lifeline down to us, and yes, you're giving us an opportunity to get out of our peril, but we'd just as soon try to do this by ourselves. After all, we're proud of ourselves, and we think we can make it. Well, I'm sure the Coast Guard would say, you're going to drown. You're never going to make it. You're going to be attacked by sharks. They're going to destroy you and kill you. You need to take this lifeline. In fact, you have to be out of your mind not to take it. This lifeline is a free gift. It'll save you. Not only did those men take the lifeline, they hugged the one who saved them by dropping that lifeline. That's what actually happened. What Paul has established in Romans so far is that all people are drowning in the sea of their own sin. All people are sinking in their own depravity. All people are heading to condemnation. He's established that not one person on this earth from God's classification is righteous, not even one. And God spotted all humanity out there drowning, and he offers them a lifeline. He offers them a way of escape. So he sent down his son, and he says, here's the lifeline. All you have to do is take it and be saved. But most people say, no, no, we don't want that. Many religious people say, no, we'd rather try to make it on our own. We'd like to see if we can somehow reach the eternal shore by our own efforts. In fact, most religions have told us we can make it by our works. And if we struggle... With our own efforts, we'll get there. That's what Mormons tell people. Many religions tell people, all you can do if you do all you can and you try the best you can, you're going to make it. All religions of the world basically say, keep the commandments and you're going to get there. If you follow the Sermon on the Mount, if you try to live by the golden rule, you'll be able to get into that celestial shoreline. 
God says you're drowning. You aren't going to make it. You're heading to destruction. So I offer you a free gift lifeline of grace. It is my son. You, by faith, take hold of that lifeline and you'll be saved. H.A. Ironside said, in all reality, you have two religions in the world. All false religions say you must do something to be saved. And then you get into a book like Romans that says you're saved by something that's already been done. And to actually have the righteousness of God, one would have had to have kept the law perfectly, and no one has ever done that. So what Paul does as he comes to this critical part of the book of Romans is he said, look, the righteousness of God that will save a sinner and give him everlasting life only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It cannot come by any works. And that's the best news you can ever hear. That is the greatest news you can ever hear. No person in and of himself will ever be good enough for God. I don't care how religious the person is. No religion, no works can save a person. It is only by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work alone that will save one from their sins. Only Christ can give us the righteousness we need to have a right relationship with God. It's called in this very text in verse 25, his righteousness, not our righteousness. It's his righteousness. That's what we need to have a relationship with God, his righteousness. And that only comes by faith. Now, there are three main thesis statements that Paul makes here in this particular section, and the first one is God's righteousness cannot come by keeping the Old Testament law. I want you to notice what is said in verse 21, but now apart from the law. I want you to notice how that begins, a noonday day, but now, in sharp contrast. And that's what this grammatically, and may I say this too, the New American Standard Bible is actually very literal in the way it translates the word order of these verses. I want you to understand that. So if you're reading a different translation, that's fine, but you might see a little different word order. But the New American Standard is very accurate to what is written in Greek in the New Testament. I want you to notice, he says, in sharp contrast, but now in sharp contrast to the depravity of man, here stands the righteousness of God. For three and a half chapters, Paul's been developing the fact we're all sinners and we're all up against the righteousness of God and we don't have it. Not one person has it. And as Paul launches into this discussion, he said, I want you to understand something about the righteousness of God. It is apart from, apart from the law. And that adverb apart, Choris is a strong adverb, which means it's completely separated. It means to be completely without something. The specific flavor of this word is stressing the fact of the absence of something. Jesus used this very adverb when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, if I'm absent from fellowship with you, you will not bear any fruit. It's impossible. Now, the Apostle Paul uses this word without the most in his writings, and he uses it several times in the book of Romans. And in Romans 10, 14, Paul really shows the meaning of the word when he says, they cannot hear God's word if they don't have a preacher. In other words, if they don't have the presence of a preacher, which means if they have the absence of a preacher, they cannot hear it. 
Now, the specific theological point that Paul wants to drive home here by using this very important adverb, without, is that the righteousness of God that will save a sinner comes totally apart from the Old Testament law. It's without the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law has no connection to one having the righteousness of God. It is completely separate. Having the righteousness of God is absent from the Old Testament law. And what I find interesting, too, about the noun law is it's an arthrous construction, which means it doesn't have a specific article. So he's not even just talking about the Old Testament law, which is included in this statement, but he's talking about all forms of works and religious legalism. And what he's saying is the righteousness of God is totally apart from any of that. In other words, you can't have the righteousness of God by trying to follow some codes that a church has invented for you to follow. You can't have the righteousness of God by following some religious rituals. You can't have the righteousness of God by going through a few Old Testament law things and trying to apply them to your life. He says, I want you to understand something. The righteousness of God has no connection at all to the law. So if a person wants to have the righteousness of God. You can't get it by trying to keep the Old Testament law. No matter how good you think you are at keeping it. That is so important. It is so important. This is wonderful news for people, but it's news that's overlooked. The vast majority of religious people think they can be right with God by fooling around with the Old Testament law. They actually believe that. If we fool around with the Old Testament law, we're going to be right with God. You cannot gain the righteousness of God that will give you a relationship with God by that Old Testament law because having the righteousness of God is a totally separate matter. We're in Malachi Wednesday night, and it's a text that deals with Old Testament legal tithing versus New Testament grace giving. And one of the things we pointed out is Paul was very clear in 1 Corinthians 16 to point out that this was to be done, these offerings were to be given on the first day of the week, not the Sabbath day, the first day of the week. He's very emphatic on that point because if he would have said, bring it on the Sabbath day, you're putting people back under the Old Testament law and he knew there's no connection to the Old Testament law on this. It's completely separate from the Old Testament law. Now, Paul says in verse 21 that this fact is clearly manifested and witnessed to by the Old Testament law and Old Testament prophets. In other words, you can go back into the Old Testament and you can clearly see that having the righteousness of God was not found through the Old Testament law. Well, let's check on that. Let's check on that. Let's go back to the moment when man sinned against God in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned against God. They were made righteous to be able to have a relationship with God, but was it by their works? Or was it by grace? How did they ever get back into a right relationship with God after they'd sinned against God? God shed the blood of an animal, and he clothed them, and he tracked them down. They didn't go looking for him. That's Genesis 3. By the time you get to Genesis 4, there's that story of Cain and Abel. 
And Cain and Abel decide that they're going to take God some form of offering. And Cain, he's a good farmer and he had worked and he had grown those crops and he decided I'm going to take those crops and I'm going to take what I've made with my own hand and the works that I've done and I'm going to give it to God. And Abel said, I don't rely on that. I'm going to shed the blood of an animal and trust that to make me right with the Lord. And we read in Hebrews 11:4 by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained a testimony that he was righteous. That's out of the book of Genesis, chapters 3 and 4. How did he get righteous? That blood. Let's move ahead to Genesis 12 and Abraham. How was Abraham made righteous in the sight of God? Well, we know the answer to that because it's stated in Genesis 15, 6. He believed the Lord. He believed faith. And it was counted to him, it was calculated to him as righteousness. His righteousness came by faith, not works. Then let's go to the Old Testament law proper. Why were there all those animal blood sacrifices? I mean, if a man could be right with God by works or by keeping the Old Testament law, why were there all those sacrifices? In Leviticus, when we went through that book, there are over 80 references to blood sacrifice. Over 80. Why are they necessary if man can earn salvation through works? Through law-keeping. Why do you have to sacrifice an animal? Every time an animal was sacrificed, the human sacrificing it was admitting, I don't have the necessary righteousness on my own to be right with God. Let's jump ahead to Habakkuk, who was a Jewish prophet, who said, the just, they're justified, by faith. He didn't say they're justified by trying to keep the Old Testament law. He said they're justified by faith. See, that Old Testament law may be able to restrain sin. It cannot remove sin from a sinner. I mean, the Old Testament law is like looking into a mirror. You can see the dirt, but the mirror can't remove the dirt. When you read the Old Testament law or you read the Sermon on the Mount, if you're honest, you'll see truth about your own sin. And I have been very impressed with a number of people who've gone through the previous chapters in the book of Romans and they've come up and said, you know, that describes me perfectly. They see themselves honestly. That's the problem. Most people don't. So the law establishes we're all guilty. But then you come to verse 21 where Paul says, but now, but now. The righteousness of God, it's apart from the law. The Old Testament law can condemn us, can't save us. To be saved, we need the righteousness of God, and that is not found in the Old Testament law. The guy who holds the record for the distance of long jump is a man by the name of Mike Powell of the United States who jumped 29 feet, 4 and a half inches, And I thought about that when I read something that Dr. McGee told. He pastored a church in Los Angeles, and he said they used to go down to the San Monica Pier and play a game called Jumping to Catalina. He said Catalina was about 15 to 20 miles west of that pier out in the Pacific. He said what the people from church would do would be to get running as fast as they can down the pier and then see how far out they could jump toward Catalina. 
He said, we had a good time. We had a lot of laughs. But you could have this world-class long jumper in there, and he could get going at high speed, and he could leap, and he could go out there nearly 30 feet. He hasn't even made it to one mile. He hasn't even got close. He said, it's true that some out-jumped others, but no one got near the island. Nobody made it. That's the way it is with the law and with the righteousness of God. Oh, a person may try to keep a few laws and rituals and rules and traditions, and they may see themselves as better than most. The problem is what we're up against is the righteousness of God, and we all fall short. So Paul says you need to understand this. The righteousness of God is apart from the law, which brings us to the second statement. We go from bad news to some of the greatest news you'll ever see. God's righteousness must come through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I want us to clearly understand the thesis here. This is so critical. There's no difference There's no distinction, Paul says in verse 22, and what he's basically going to say here is no one will ever be able to be their own savior. You will not be able to save yourself, nor will I. There's not a thing we can do in and of ourselves to make us righteous in the sight of God, except believe in the Lord. And Paul says this righteousness of God has been manifested, and it's the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And when he uses that noun faith, he's talking about what a person believes in or trusts in to make them righteous in the sight of God. That's what he's referring to. In other words, God is righteous, and he's a holy God. What do you believe will actually make you as righteous as God so you can have a relationship with God. What do you trust in that's going to make you as righteous as God? Now, Romans 3.23 is probably one of the most memorized verses in the book of Romans, but most people who memorize it don't realize the significance of it. Because the four, the conjunction that begins verse 23, for all have sinned, explains why The righteousness of God may only be found by faith in Jesus Christ. This is the reason. There's no distinction between people. We're all sinners. This is why the righteousness of God can't be found in trying to keep the Old Testament law. It can't be found by trying to do good works or being religious. Why? Because we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And that verb, fall short, is a present middle, as I pointed out in Scripture reading. Every person, every person in and of themselves has fallen short of the glory of God. So let's not try to make up some excuse that you haven't fallen into this category. In fact, I point out to you, notice verse 22, for all. For all. And verse 23, for all. So there's no distinction. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, yet the invitation to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to get the righteousness of God is also for all. So I don't know what your sin is, what your 
quirks are. I don't need to know that stuff about you. I mean, this is between you and God, but here's what I do know. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's what this text says. And what this also says is you've been given an invitation, an invitation to get out of that and get the righteousness of God given to you, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And that invitation is given to all as well. God's righteousness that saves people must come by faith in Jesus Christ because every human being has sinned against God. Every human being on this earth has fallen short of the glory and splendor of God. That's why righteousness that will give us a relationship with God must come through a righteousness we don't have. And there's no distinction here between people or sins. Whether one is a religious Jew or heathen Gentile, no distinction. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. No man, no woman, no boy, nor girl has ever measured up to the righteousness of God. Our righteousness is as filthy rags compared to God. I mean, that's the way he sees it. We're all sinners. Our best works, our best works that you've ever done, in fact, you can think through your own best works you think you've ever done, have been done by a sinner. Why? Because we're all sinners. God's never sinned. So how in the world are we going to get a righteousness, a righteousness that's his righteousness, when we know even the best things we've ever done in life have been done by a sinner? Which brings us to his third statement, God's righteousness must be God's grace gift. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace. And the text says, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so critical. This gift of justification is a free grace gift of God. All of these things he mentions here have to be a free grace gift package given by God to the sinner who believes in Jesus Christ. That's how you get the righteousness of God. You get a free grace gift package. And this free grace gift package is given to you by God through faith in Jesus Christ. And he uses technical theological terms here. In verse 24, he uses justify and redemption. In verse 25, he uses the noun propitiation. And when you think of that term justify, you're talking about a legal courtroom term and you need to understand it this way. We're talking about serious legal matters. We are all legally sinners. And we can't get out of that and get the righteousness of God that would say to God, well, come live with me forever. So the righteousness that we have is going to have to come some other means than just our works or our religion because we're all sinners. And to be justified... This is the tricky part of this. To be justified would mean we've appeared in the court of God and we've had God, who's never sinned, cannot lie. We've already established that in the book of Romans. We would have to have God calculate us as being as righteous as he is in order to let us come live with him. And so he has to figure out a way, how in the world can I declare people who've all sinned against us to have this kind of righteousness? And he says, I can do that through what my son did. And he says, when one believes in my son, 
They are justified by a grace gift. It's a gift. The term justification is the legal moment in God's courtroom where God says, I judicially declare you free from condemnation. I judicially declare you having the righteousness of my son applied to you and to your account. Now, I want to be very clear on this point. Martin Luther said, this doctrine of justification determines the rise and fall of the church. John Calvin said this doctrine of justification is the hinge of the gospel on which the whole gospel turns. And there are people fuzzy about this, so I want to be as clear as we can in understanding the judicial nature of this. We will certainly analyze this more in chapters 4 and 5 of Romans. But justification does not mean you are made righteous. It means you are declared righteous. This is where people get way off track. You are not going to end up in heaven because you tried to be good. The only way you'll end up in heaven is if you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the only way you're going to get into heaven with that righteousness is to believe in him. In order to get into heaven, you have to have this righteousness. And the only way it comes is through faith in Jesus Christ. This is where people that get off in lordship salvation just don't seem to click on this point. This has nothing to do with your character. Whether you follow him or promise to follow him or whatever, it has nothing to do with that. This has to do with a court scene taking place in which God says, I declare that sinner righteous and give that sinner the righteousness of my son. That's what's at stake here. Unless we think I've misread that, he follows that up by saying, and being justified as a gift by grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now he calls it redemption. And here's a word that means my son paid the price for this. He uses a strong Greek verb here, by the way, intensive Greek verb. My son paid the price for these people. I paid the price to be able to save them and release them from their condemnation. And then he throws in the noun propitiation, which means he actually appeased and satisfied all the demands that were necessary to make them right with me. I mean, Jesus Christ did it all. And when you look at these verses, there are four powerful facts. First of all, since we've all sinned, we're justified by the grace gift of Jesus Christ. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace. I want you to notice that. As one commentator said, this is the greatest single verse in the entire Bible. If it's a grace gift, it's not a wage, it's not a payment. It's not earned. If it's a grace gift, it's a gift. You know, we often sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The problem is most people who sing that song don't really see themselves as bad wretches. If they did, they would realize we can't be right with God by works. It has to be by his amazing grace. Now, what Paul says here in plain language is that a person who's justified is justified by a grace gift. 
And a gift is freely given without any strings attached. Don't miss that. That's what a gift is. A gift is you give something to someone and there are no strings attached. And this is what I think is so critical. The righteousness of God is an imputed righteousness to one who believes without any strings attached. Salvation is a free gift of God that he gives to any who believe in Jesus Christ. It's not by any works. It's not by you saying, okay, I promise I'll try hard to do this. It's not by your commitments. It is a gift. If it's by works or by promises or your commitments, that's not a gift. Then you're trying to earn something. Salvation is a gift given by God to man apart from any merit or effort. And as Paul said in the 23rd verse, all have sinned, but not all will receive this grace gift. I guarantee you the most, most won't because they're proud. They'd rather rely upon themselves than the lifeline of Jesus Christ. But understand this theological point. No one gains God's righteousness that saves them because they deserve it. No one gains the righteousness of God that will allow them to live in heaven because they merited it. It is a free, gracious gift of God given to one who believes in Jesus Christ, and it doesn't matter what the sin is. What God owes every one of us would be just condemnation. What he does not owe us is grace salvation. But God gives us grace salvation. It's a free, gracious gift. And that gift didn't cost us anything. It cost him a great deal. It cost him a great deal. I mean, sometimes you hear that argument. Well, cheap grace, they call it. Cheap grace. Because if you just are justified by believing on Jesus Christ, then you can go out and do whatever you want. That's cheap grace. Oh, boy, look at this text. It's not cheap. It costs God his precious son to give us this package of grace. But it is a grace gift. Secondly, since we've all sinned, we're redeemed by Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verse 24, through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. The idea behind that word redemption is somebody pays the price for something. And as we've pointed out many times in this church, you have three verbs that can be translated redeem. The first one, agarazzo, you go and you buy something in an auction and you leave it there in the auction hoping to resell it at a higher profit. Ek agarazzo, you go to an auction and you buy something in the auction and you take it home to be yours. But then you have lutrao, you go to an auction, you buy something in the auction, you take it home and you just let it go free. That's the one Paul uses here. In fact, he uses a very emphatic, intensive form of the verb here. He not only uses lutrao, but apo lutrao, which means the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth, paid the whole price for our sins, died on that cross to set us completely free from condemnation. But then he brings out this redemption is found in Christ Jesus. Why did he use that noun order there? I think there's a reason for that. See, he's writing to Rome that pretty much is a Gentile church. And he's basically saying you need to understand this. This redemption whether for Jew, Christos is Messiah, or Gentile, Jesus is Savior, this is the one, the only one, whether it's Jew or Gentile, that can give one redemption. No other person can redeem from sin. No one can redeem themselves from sin. 
No one can pay the price necessary to get the righteousness of God. It's impossible. You can't get before God into his court and say, well, what can I pay you so that I can earn your righteousness? You can't come up with a system that will ever give you that righteousness because it is a free grace gift and Christ paid it already. Which brings us to the third fact, since we've all sinned, we have propitiation through Christ's blood. And don't overlook that. Verse 25 says, displayed publicly a propitiation in his blood through faith. In other words, when the Lord Jesus Christ went to that cross and shed his blood, everything that he needed to appease to have us as sinners have a relationship with God was met by his shed blood, every bit of it. That's why when we celebrate communion, we bring out these points very clearly and carefully. Paul would give that to the church to celebrate, and that wafer or that bread, which symbolizes the fact that his body took God's wrath and took our sin, I mean, that comes right out of this here. And then that cup where his blood was shed, it comes right out of this here. God says, don't ever forget this. What can wash away your sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Don't miss this. This is the only way that any one of us can have a compatible relationship with the Lord through the shed blood and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says prior to Christ dying on the cross, God passed over the sins with the shed blood of the animals, but the shed blood of the animals could not remove it or take it away. But when Jesus died on that cross, and notice the noun or he uses previously Christ Jesus, when Jesus died on that cross, that enabled a Jew to have a relationship with God forever, and it enables a Gentile also to do that. When he died on that cross, he makes it possible for a sinner to have a compatible relationship with the Lord. And then, since we've all sinned, we receive the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. We read in 26, I say of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Don't miss this. Don't miss this because you miss this, you can miss eternity. The only way to receive the righteousness of God that will cause God to be just in justifying a sinner is through the work of his son. And the only way that we can tap into the work of his son is just simply believe in it. Believe in him. That's it. It's a grace gift package. How can God declare a sinner righteous when he knows and we know we're not righteous? How could a just God who cannot lie, how could a just God who cannot lie solve the problem of saying that we have his righteousness when we know and he knows we don't have it. How can he do that? He said, I have an amazing grace plan. The righteousness will come through my son. I'll send my son. He'll go to that cross. He'll die for you. And when you believe in him, I will as judge impute to you his righteousness in full appeasement of my wrath, and in full appeasement of your sin. Boy, let's be as clear as this text can be. There's only one way to have a compatible relationship with God. There's only one way that we can have the righteousness of God, and that is by faith alone in Christ alone. This is God's way. It's his only way. There are no other options. And God is dangling 
for you today, that lifeline right out of heaven. You're drowning. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you're drowning in your own sin. You don't even know it. You may think, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it on my own. You're never going to get to that celestial shore on your own because you don't have the righteousness, nor do I, in order to get there. That righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. You believe in him, and he'll take you all the way to heaven. Really, it comes down to this. You either believe in your own righteousness to save you, or you believe in Christ's righteousness to save you. Which is it? Let's pray. If you've never believed in Jesus Christ, this would be a wonderful day for you to settle that right where you sit. You pray something like this, God, I'm a sinner, I know it. I know it, I admit it. Thank you, thank you that Jesus Christ came here and paid the price for me. And right now, I place all of my faith in him to save me. Our Father, this is a mind-boggling passage that is just full of amazing grace that, quite honestly, we can't fully grasp even as we've crawled through it. It's just staggering to think that you've devised this eternal plan whereby you could still be a just God and justify people like us through your Son. I pray, Lord, that no one who would ever hear this, either in this sanctuary this morning or out on live stream or whenever this goes to the World Wide Web, no one would ever hear this who would not believe in the Lord and be saved. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.